Hello, and welcome to the Did You Know Crypto Podcast. And I'm be talking to Paul Rosenberg, an early cypherpunk, about a project in the very, very early 2000s that predated Bitcoin. That it's a really, really interesting story, one that I've never heard, and I've become increasingly interested in cypherpunk history since Bitcoin is inexorably intertwined with this movement. Um, so I really think that you are going to enjoy today's episode as much as I did. Paul's a great guy, great storyteller, and we're going to have him on uh, at a different time as well to talk about online security. Uh, but uh, I think you guys are going to really like this one. It's a, it's a great conversation. Uh, but first, if you could do me a huge favor, head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating and a written review. That helps me so much bumps me up in the ratings on iTunes when anybody searches for crypto or Bitcoin. It's the biggest thing you can do right now. I don't need money. I don't have advertisers. That's really all I need people to do. If you want to help out a little bit more, you can go over to supportmypodcast.com. That's supportmypodcast.com. And it has all the different ways that you can help out from every time you want to shop on Amazon, just go through our Amazon link and they kick back a little bit to us costs you absolutely nothing more on your order just gives us a little bit off the top you can also support us on bitbacker using bitcoin um, as well as a few other little things on there uh, but mostly i just want to thank you for downloading listening subscribing sharing the podcast i really really appreciate everybody who does that i appreciate you who's listening right now so enjoy the show to welcome Paul Rosenberg, early cypherpunk, author of countless articles and multiple books, including The Lodging of Wayfaring Men and Production versus Plunder. He is also one of the founders of Crypto Hippie Privacy Service and writes weekly on his blog at The Freeman's Perspective. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So what spurred this uh, this interview was your blog post. I can't remember who it was originally. It was quite a while ago. Uh, one of the er early posts was shared on Twitter and so I started to read that, and then as you were posting more and more about it, uh, and it kind of turned into an ebook, which which I've bought and finished now, um, and it, it kind of regaling uh, an early, I guess, uh, 2000s attempt at creating a kind of liberty-focused, you know, physical society um, that was still rooted in, you know, the, the burgundy world of the internet and the cypherpunk movement, but... Um, before we delve into that directly in that story, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself uh, and kind of set the stage of what led to the this project's genesis? Sure. Well, um, I actually began in the construction business. Uh, I was uh, in the electrical business and did all sorts of things in, in that business, and uh, I wrote books and articles and so on. Uh, and then I moved in to fiber optic, uh, it was right at the beginning, and it was a gas. Um, there was nobody to tell you what to do or not to do, and we kind of invented it all as we went, and it was wonderful. Um, I was involved with the creation of uh, something called the Fiber Optic Association that's doing very well these days. Uh, and so I, I began moving into computers and electronics in, in that way, and then uh, I discovered cryptography, uh, and I'm not precisely sure when, but I know that, that by 95 and 96, I was pretty well involved. So I wasn't one of the first cypherpunks. I was like, you know, generation 1.5 or something. Um, but I was in that orbit. Uh, the, the list really wasn't very exciting in those days, I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> but I was kind of in that orbit in those days. And uh, one thing fell upon another, and I ran into the people who were starting this project in Costa Rica. And I said, oh, my God, I, I, I've got what you guys need, because I had done a, a lot of research and on this subject and I had a piece of it that they needed very badly and didn't have and uh, we got to talking and pretty soon I was flying back and forth to Costa Rica helping to build this thing and that's how I got there. 
And that, that's kind of funny because uh, just uh, before you know we go go into the the juicier parts, you talk about uh, the early days of fiber. Um, um, my my dad was in the uh, telecom industry, and he did copper splicing until moving into into fiber. And then I end up working on the uh, outside plant side, doing the uh, actual laying of fiber cables all around Alaska um, for for oh, a period of time. Funny. Yeah, we actually laid uh, as we were doing. There's a big fiber project out in Nome, Alaska. We actually did a drop um, uh, just for fun, kind of out to uh, the house that White Earp had lived in when he was in there, just to kind of say that we did a. Uh, uh, internet drop out of White Earp's house, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it it is, and and uh, you know that actually because I, I was aware of that organization when I was kind of looking at your um, at your history, and you talked about you started that. I, I was aware of that because I, I remember seeing because uh, all the trade shows that that he used to go to and stuff like that, and and they were uh, they were a part of that. But anyways, I don't think I the, probably ran into your dad at some point. Uh, yeah, possibly. Yeah, it's uh, but. Yeah. But yeah, the listeners probably don't want to hear about uh, about me uh, digging holes in Alaska. So, but uh, uh, okay. your your series of uh, blog posts that uh, turned into uh, the book, like we were talking about, uh, called the Great Crypto Story Never Told. Uh, you know, it was a really fascinating piece of history. You know, because anyone that's interested in either kind of the genesis and and uh, not genesis, but the uh, evolution of the liberty movement. Um, or the history of cypherpunks, which a lot of that that Venn diagram really kind of overlaps. I think we're really enjoying. Yeah. I've become more and more interested in that as I've gotten more and more into the the Bitcoin space. But uh, um, you you kind of left off that you had heard about these uh, you, this, this project and you got invited out to Costa Rica. So why don't you you know kind of tell us exactly you know what happened and uh, and and you know what was all accomplished and kind of the the after effects of it. Okay. Um, first of all, the whole project was just um, entertaining in the extreme. Uh, there was just endless stories of things that were going on. We we had uh, I called in one of the articles "Crypto Heaven," and, and it really was. I mean, we had we had everything you would ever want to have for working and getting cryptography and crypto systems done. It was a gas. We had the best guys. We had the best situation. We had our own restaurant. We had all kinds of things. So it was really a gas doing it. But what we were trying to do was really to create a new world uh, in cyberspace. Uh, and this was, remember, these were the days just after the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace and things like that. We were serious about it. And uh, we first built. Um, communications. Uh, we had a really nice uh, encrypted mail system called MailVault. It was a PGP via webmail. And it was done, gosh, I don't know, when it was, fine, when it was really completed first, but in, in the 2000 range. Uh, and then it was improved and so on as time went on. But it was the first one like it, in new, I think. And it was, it worked very well. It was in existence for a long time. Uh, so we built communications, uh, we began to build financial systems, and there's all kinds of drama built around all of this, uh, Group A versus Group B, and all sorts of, you know, things that went on that were very interesting and, and very compelling to those of us who were there. And uh, But we did it. We actually built these financial systems. Uh, they worked with... Digital coins, which uh, we, we called them, we called it them digital bearer certificates, which is the same thing as a digital coin. It's a piece of code that is demonstrably worth so much and you cannot be counterfeited. Uh, it was done with hashing and so on. I, I didn't build it myself, so I can't give you the exact details. Um, but they worked really, really well, and they worked for for a good piece of time. Uh, we had a completely anonymous financial system and a pretty extensive system, including uh, trading in stocks, bonds, and futures. And we had that uh, by the end of, I think it was 2002. And so it was really quite a, uh, quite a fascinating time, and we really turned out a lot of product. We also had things like uh, dispute resolution. Uh, that we handled. There were quite a few little disputes, and they got handled just about always, I think, very nicely. Um, 
And the whole thing just was a wonderful experiment as to how it would work. And it did work. It worked really well. I mean, not perfectly, but you're talking about real humans here, all of their foibles and, you know, occasional stupidities. Um, it worked really, really well. So it was, uh, in my opinion, as I look at it, it was a tremendously important experiment. And one of the really important things about it, from when I look at it now, is that this was a real dry time for cryptography. This was well before Bitcoin and well after the first um, the first burst of cypherpunks on, onto the internet. This was this was maybe ninety nine to two thousand two, and it was just all things cypherpunk were dry at that time, and so these were people who were really building something really making things, and it really kind of saved that era from, it saved things from going further dry and maybe being lost. Now, who knows? I mean, I don't really, you know, I don't even know exactly who Satoshi was. I know uh, Satoshi was in the gang, but I don't know which one of the gang. Uh, and, you know, what would happen? Would Satoshi have finished Bitcoin if if things like this weren't there? Because it made a real important bridge from the cypherpunks to e-gold, which people forget about, but it really kept things alive for a while. I mean, e-gold ended in 2008 just as Bitcoin was about to explode. So it was a very important interlude, and it's a shame it got forgotten about. I know people didn't want to talk about it for a long time, but I thought it was time that I should, and, and I'm really pleased that I did, and I'm really pleased that a whole new generation can hear about it. So why do you think that uh, it, it was, uh, you said right there at the end that uh, you know a lot of people kind of didn't want it to be talked about. Why, why do you feel that that um, had happened? Uh, I mean, if if the, the listeners, like, we're not going to go over every minute detail uh, in, in the podcast, yeah, you can read the blog post and then the, uh, the, the, for the, for the end of the story, the ebook on Amazon, I'll have that link in the, uh, show notes at, uh, um, on did you know crypto.com. But you, why do you think that people kind of had for a period of time, um, just kind of decided to forget about it? Well, you have to remember that we were all a little concerned in those days. It was pretty dangerous time. Phil Zimmerman had just about gone to jail for releasing PGP. I mean, it was no joke. They, he was he was under indictment and everything else. And uh, it was also, um, you know, right after our project ended, eGold was coming on, and there were all sorts of problems with that. And then Bernie von Nathaus, uh went to jail or almost went to jail. The guy who ran eGold uh, almost went to jail, Doug Jackson. Um, so people were concerned about these things. It was it was very personal and very close in those days. I think probably some of the guys, um, uh, you know, maybe didn't report their income or something like that too. I I really don't know. That's just my my guess. Uh, but people were concerned about it because guys were in in serious jeopardy of going to jail who were a part of our very small community. And people just, you know, said, just shut up. Don't say anything about it. Everyone knows enough. Those who want to know can know. And we should just shut up and not draw attention to ourselves. Even after the fact, it was just a habit that was established. And I, to be honest, I might not have written this story were it not that the two people who drove it the most uh, are now deceased. And had that not been the case, I might not have written it still. Yeah, it's uh, one of the people that I found really interesting in there was uh, I might be uh, mispronouncing his name, but uh, Orlin Gravy. Um, That's and, correct, Orlin Gravy. Yeah, yeah and and he was, uh, I guess Rex uh, was the the money behind it, but but Orlin was as well, correct? Orlin brought some money, but Rex brought the money, and Orlin brought the. Uh, the brains and the contacts and all okay. the people who could do these things, and he he really drove uh, he drove the system more than anybody else. Orland did a did a hell of a job, and it was kind of interesting to me because originally, um, uh, what you guys were doing was, and, and the idea that proposed was was an actual like physical location was um, there was a, a, a 
a leader in, in a South American state that um, had, you know, basically made kind of a somewhat verbal agreement for a certain amount of land that could be leased for, uh, I, I forget if it was a 50 years or 100 years. Um, just yeah. kind of, and and then when that kind of fell apart, all these all these people, you know, were kind of going like, what, what next? Um, and his shift is what kind of struck me is like in this, we need to, you know, going from we need to carve out a physical lake location um, uh, via geography to kind of like, you know, cryptology can do this and math can do this um, in a way as a as a defense against the encroachments on privacy and freedom and kind of rendering those attempts to uh, attack liberty in a lot of different ways kind of moot. And I find that there's an increasing mentality, myself being one of them, that the that the digital space, the future kind of virtual world, um, has the possibility to offer. And it's probably a lot more of a hopium and and uh, and, and wishful thinking, but uh, can offer a space where people don't need to agree. Like in you know in the in the physical space, we do. Um, there, there, to to an extent, you have to find some sort of agreement with your neighbors, whatever kind of way you want to do that. Um, and a lot of times that 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 devolves down into ideologies, and those ideologies clash, and and those types of things because there there is a scarce amount of space, right? Um, and there's a scarce amount of resources on that space, uh, and that's usually what what leads to conflict. Well, not usually, but sometimes. Uh, but with a virtual world, that's you know, somewhat endless in a way. It, it seems to me that that would offer the ability for people to have uh, the freedom to live out their ideas uh, without bumping into the next guy, I guess, if that makes sense. And while that's a lot more uh, far out there and what I'm talking about, Orlin kind of had, it seemed like almost a, a kind of an early version of that, of going like, well, maybe we don't need this physical location. You know, we can actually carve out a space of privacy and, and, and liberty on the internet via, uh, you know, cryptology. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was the early cypherpunk vision, even before my time. Um, but you need both uh, in real life. Uh, you need to have uh, a space uh, in cyberspace, uh, which is really crucial because it's terra nova. It's a new land. And cryptography gave us the ability to fence it off and saying, yeah, no one can come here. And we don't want you to come in here. Tough. Here we are. We're going to do our thing and you can't come. And it gave us, it, what it did is it opened space for human development, whereas in the ruled world, whatever nation state you happen to be in, um, your violence can be used upon you at any time. You'll notice, you've seen this a hundred times, people are gonna, getting ready to complain about the IRS or the FBI or something like that, and they're in a cocktail party, and they lower their voice. And it's because that's it's physical space, and there are these groups that that demand the right to use violence upon anybody who displeases them. Now we don't say it that way in polite company, but that's the way it is. And uh, so cyberspace gave us Terra Nova, it gave us a new place where we could develop as we wished. Um, and the old way, before the internet, before cyberspace, was what these guys tried at the beginning. It was before I was there. Uh, I didn't come until it was cypher. <laughs> but um, at the beginning, they tried to bribe uh, – you know, these guys had some money, and, and they were bribing a, a South American leader, whose name I'll leave off, and uh, – he was going to lease them, I think it was 100 square miles uh, of property, and they were going to create their own nation, which was not terribly uncommon in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s. Because if you grow up in that kind of situation, you you know, cy cyberspace really wasn't something you ever thought about. Um, then that was the only choice you had to try to get a piece of land that you could control. Uh, so guys wanted to do it. It never worked out. Uh, but they tried because they, what the hell, you got to try something. And um, when that failed, as again, they always did, uh, Orlin was there. And Orlin explained to these guys uh, that this was the way to do it. Now, we can't 
you know, you can't build your house there. You can't take physical delivery of physical goods, but that's not the central thing of life. And, and, and all these other things matter a whole lot. And we can do all of them protected by mathematics and we can do it our way and begin to develop our way. And Orland was a financial wizard and these guys listened to him and they put their money up and they created the place. And it's just kind of a miracle that it actually happened. Now you, uh, you know, the laissez-faire city, and and the, you know its later iteration um, on the on the as far as for the the products that you guys were creating and put it out. I, I wouldn't say you know failed, but I mean as far as for the division of either opening up a physical space and or you know laissez-faire um, uh, or Dodge City, I should say, and, and those types of things. I mean, eventually it did in a way kind of because everyone kind of left uh, uh, fail in a way, right. even though they had a lot of successful products. Uh, do you feel that it was kind of like a dot com, uh, the kind of like the dot com bust kind of thing where it was good ideas, good implementations? It was just too early for either the consumer or the technology to kind of make it a a reality that really stuck. Well, that's an interesting question. It was early, that's for sure. Um, and it had the problem with all of the projects in those days in that there was a central a head you could cut off. Uh, this is something Satoshi wrote about, and he actually used that term. Um, there was always a head you could cut off. And uh, in this case, uh, that happened uh, in kind of a roundabout ways. Uh, but was it, it was too early? Well, that wasn't too early. It was too early maybe for mass adaptation. Um, but it just, they were, they were too exposed in too many ways. And ultimately, uh, they just got brought down because things were too centralized. The financial system encrypted and everything, though it was, was still centralized. And they made a particular error. Um, and the whole thing had to close up. I think everyone was getting a little nervous that the feds were going to pounce anyway. So um, closing up wasn't the worst thing in a lot of people's opinions, but I'm just guessing at that. Uh, so I don't know, it's a complex thing, but really that's a part of that, that whole concept. The, the problem was centralized, centralized control, and which is, again, why Satoshi wrote Bitcoin and was able to make it uh, to operate without anybody in control at all. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I always thought that the 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 pseudonymous anonymous identity was always a stroke of genius because of for a variety of reasons. One, because there's not, you don't you don't uh, there's no one to go after um, if if you don't know who it is, uh, and then also mm -hmm. you can, um, and you see this because there's people from different ideological backgrounds. Uh, and different ideas on what Bitcoin is, right? And because it usually right. is whatever it means to them. And with an anonymous identity, uh, you can kind of allow people to graft whatever hopes and dreams that they have for it onto that identity um, and and kind of not make it where it's, you know, Joe Smith is the guy who invented it. And, you know, he did this. And he also said some kind of unkind things back on Twitter back in 2004, you know, sort of deal um, where... Right. You know, I I always felt that that was was kind of a, a smart thing. But you actually you, you mentioned Bitcoin specifically in the story, and I'll bring up the quote was um, that you said, "I am convinced that the reason Bitcoin survived isn't that it withstood the attacks of its enemies, but because it withstood the foolishness of its friends." And I read my own interpretation into that while I read your story, but I was wondering if you could elaborate what uh, what you meant by that. Well, uh, I, I don't want to pick on anybody, but I think that there have been quite a few people in the Bitcoin space uh, that, as you say, brought their own stuff to it and tried to interpret it in their own way and decided that, well, Bitcoin had to be the way they see it and began fighting over these things. Now, you know, I understand that Bitcoin is not you know, complete perfection and it needs to be, you know, updated or it needs to this or needs to that. And it's been, there's been a lot of fixes to it. Um, and I understand it's technology. It doesn't spring absolutely in perfect form in its first iteration. Fine. I, I get that. But people have been fighting about it stupidly, in my opinion. Um, and, 
the great thing about Bitcoin is is that it didn't matter. Yeah, there's a great line. I'll, I'll give it to you. We got a couple minutes here. Um, Martin Luther, when he's breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and everything is going crazy, and there's um, people were actually fighting and dying in those days. Um, and one of the he and his young lieutenant are off in some little church somewhere, and, and they decide they need to pray. And the lieutenant starts going on about, you know, dear Lord, save us from our enemies. And, and Luther goes, no, 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 no. He stops him. No, 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 no. Don't we, we says, don't don't pray that way. Well, what do you mean? He says, we can deal with our enemies. God save us from our friends. <laughs> And, um, you know, that's what happens. People get into this and they bring their own stuff to it and they get very excited about it. And then if you're if they're not careful, they can fight amongst each other and that can just create all sorts of mayhem. But Bitcoin is just code. It doesn't care. It doesn't care who insults it. It doesn't care who says what. It's just code, and it just works. And those who want to participate can play their little role. And if somebody doesn't, they don't. And if they want to create their own currency, that's fine. They can go create their own currency. The code doesn't care, and it just keeps going. And you know, I think that's been the saving grace of Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I, I would, I would definitely agree. I think that um, one of the things I really like about um, Bitcoin uh, is that I, I, the the splits and the fights. Um, I, I think that that's, that that's going to happen uh, no matter what project you know. And, and you see this w within um, you know your guys' own project there uh, with the with the split between Rex and Orland's team, but uh, and Rex's vision versus what Orland wanted to do. And right. but what's what's really cool about the Bitcoin space is that you can fork. Um, you can. Yeah. And I know that that, that there, it's definitely an attack vector on Bitcoin and that it pulls off, you know, there there is brand confusion. It does pull off talent. It does confuse people and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, um, it's it's bloodless. Uh, both people can go their own way and then they get to fight it out in, in the marketplaces of ideas. And sometimes it's a dirty fight uh, and sometimes it's, an, you know, uh, everyone's kind of operating as honorable people. But in the end, the market's going to de de determine it, uh, for better or worse. Uh, what's what the true quote unquote true Bitcoin is, and what's the best iteration of it? And and absolutely, I, 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 I and like the, that. Yeah, and and the thing is, <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing about it is, let's say that you and I tomorrow had this unbelievable idea for a currency. And we decided for whatever reason that we were going to fork Bitcoin and convince a bunch of people to that we were right and make our own currency. And let's say we were right. Let's say this currency really was better than Bitcoin. It, it, it incorporates all the things that we want and it's great and everything else. And all of a sudden we got our own currency and, it, and people love it and are starting to use it. Guess what's going to happen a year down the road? Bitcoin is going to, <laughs> is going to incorporate our advances. <laughs> and so is everyone else. Because, oh, you can, we can do this instead and it's better. Well, let's do it that way. And so everybody improves by one person improving with a certain time lag built in. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of that open source mentality. And that's what I, I've always expected about Bitcoin. It's kind of, it reminds me of I when I was doing the initial uh, high school study of of um you know religious you know ideologies you know you, you kind of go over uh you know early kind of confucian and zoroastrianism and and buddhism everything like that right and what always got uh was impressed to me about hinduism was his ability that at one point buddhism almost supplanted it on the indian subcontinent and they the the, the, the religious teaching basically just incorporated uh started to incorporate all the aspects of buddhism that apparently people you know liked and it regained its popularity. Uh, it didn't ever really spread past that area, but it completely regained it just by incorporating a lot of those same doctrines and what was popular and what people liked about it. And I always kind of thought of Bitcoin as that way, as kind of like being this um, very fluid religious ideology that goes like, oh, you know, I like that. I'm going to take that. You know, people like that. It works. I'm going to take it. Yeah. And I, I actually, there was some news in this recently. I didn't dig into it myself, so I don't know all the details. But uh, Bitcoin is uh, working with Mimblewimble, which is a very interesting privacy currency. And they're doing some sort of, uh, you know, connection between the two, which I think is a very good thing in general. 
Yeah, I was. You, you kind of touched on a little bit uh, already, but um, you know, in in the story, um, Orlin, you know, there, there's kind of a split uh, versus kind of Vision, right? In in Orlin and right. and his team, um, you know, left and uh, were, were, they were uh, kind of. Because Rex, the money behind the project, he was kind of more of a move fast and break things sort of guy. Orlin was, <laughs> yes, and, was. It, yeah, and it seemed like Orlin was like, no, we need to get this right. And as you explained multiple times, that security is not something that you can easily do. Um, but you also said that, you know, from the out, outset, you know, uh, what Rex's team had put out there, Dodge City was outside very enticing, and especially for non-technical people. It you know it, it was great because you still had the you know good people you had great ideas being shared, uh, and it worked. Uh, so you couldn't blame people from joining in. Um, and and I have my own opinions on this, but I was wondering, do you see the 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 same parallels in kind of the crypto space of of uh, the the proper way to go about things versus not you know move fast and break things versus kind of more conservative approaches to adoptions of technologies. Well, to some extent, but what I really see in, in the Bitcoin space is people coming in for, well, shall I say, less than ideal reasons. Um, at least from, from my perspective, they're coming in, oh, we can make a lot of money real fast, or let's get in on this new thing. What is it? I don't know, but let's get in on it. Um, and we have people coming in, and then we got, you know, the corporate types who are going to you know, try to create their own crypto association and take over and all those sorts of things are going on. The interesting thing about what goes on with Bitcoin is a lot of those people, if they come even for just want to get rich quickers and they come and they start looking around and start learning, well, what is this thing? It's often not terribly long until they really get it, and they start and they start singing the song of, of, of decentralization, and it's better for human thriving, and on and on. So I've been really pleased to see a fair amount of that. Um, I think that's been kind of the uh, the version that's the version of it that I see in Bitcoin world. Yeah, I've, I've uh, you know, if you would ask me, probably about uh, eighteen months ago. Um, I, I I admittedly, you know, even though I'd gotten first involved kind of in Bitcoin in 2013, started doing GPU mining with like Litecoin and other stuff back in the day, um, which <laughs> was not an early adopter, you know, compared to some of the OGs out there. But uh, uh, it, it was a lot early, early enough. Yeah, early enough. And but the thing is, is I, I never really delved that deeply. I was very more. It was more of a political and topical thing for me. It was like somebody, you know, I, I listened to like Andreas Antonopoulos and I heard, you know, how does Bitcoin work at a very basic uh, kind of non-technical level. And I went, okay, I get it. And I, I never kind of delved that deeply into it after that. So 2017 rolled around and I, you know, all these kind of promises of, oh, you know, we can, you know, decentralize this or we can put, you know, this on the blockchain and that on the blockchain. And, and I kind of bought into the idea of like, well, yeah, we can do all that kind of stuff until I started to like read a little bit more about, you know, that, just because something can be put on a blockchain, does it really need to be? Or, it, it, you know, is it a net right. positive for that? You know, do, you, do you, is tracking bananas really the best use for a blockchain? Does it help the bananas or the blockchain um, right. at, at all? And kind of going to like, okay, you know, like, yeah, just because it's technically possible doesn't mean it's the most efficient way or the best way to do it. That, you know, in some ways, a, you know, a, just a regular permissioned ledger on a company's server because nobody's trying to hack the bananas for the most part. You don't need this massive energy output to secure, you know, your 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 ledger of where all these bananas are going. Um, it's not right. money. Nobody's really going to go like, oh, yeah, we're going to put in millions of dollars because we want to make sure that they lose track of where this banana shipment went. Um, right. And so I kind of it's kind of like a coming back home thing, right, where you start to go like, OK, like, you know, because at first – after a while, you, you learn about Bitcoin, you get really excited, but then you kind of start to take it for granted, just like anything, whether you get a bigger TV or you have a beautiful view. Uh, and you kind of stop to f and and don't think about like how how kind of uh, important and kind of groundbreaking that that, that idea was. Because if you look back, all the iterations of that you mentioned, eGold um, and all the other iterations before that as well, like they all ran into these issues and they couldn't make it work. And, and Satoshi was able to kind of take what other people had done, learn from their mistakes and and build on top of that and put it into this kind of beautiful, beautiful kind of conglomeration that, that works. Um, oh, 
And if it didn't, it was a, we'd know it was by a now. Wonderful, wonderful production. My God. So, in kind of at the very beginning, I kind of talked a little bit about virtual, um, kind of living in the virtual world, and and uh, kind of Orland's understanding of moving, uh, and you like you know the cypherpunks as well as the need to kind of carve out this secure space that can't be encroached upon in cyberspace. Um, you know, w- when I was talking about like the virtual world where people could kind of live it out, that's definitely kind of more in the future, um, where. I, I, I'm wondering what you think of the idea of one step ahead of where we are now, of something that's been talked about a lot, kind of the idea of like virtual nations, virtual citizenship. Estonia already has this, but uh, how does that concept kind of match up or kind of conflict with what the idea of laissez-faire city was? Hey folks, I hope that you're enjoying this episode as much as we are. I don't have any sponsors, so if you could go over to supportmypodcast.com, you'll see all the different ways that you can support the podcast, from Amazon links to a bunch of other stuff. You could back us on Bitbacker with crypto. But most of all, if you can go to iTunes and leave a five-star and a written review, it'd be very, very helpful. So thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the show. Um, well, actually, that was one of the battles we fought uh, while setting up Fair City. There was... Uh, one particular guy and a few others who who wanted to oh let's make, write a constitution and everything else and you know I understand why some people want to do that as an interim sort of measure and if you want to do that that's fine but it's kind of the same we meet the new boss same as the old boss once you got a nation you know you have to keep people in line you've got to get money to run the thing. Um, Ultimately, it's a, it's a hierarchy, and once you create a hierarchy, it tends to perpetuate itself, and all hierarchy, just by the design of such a thing, can only survive by the restraint of human will by the people who are involved. In other words, if the hierarchy is going to live, if it's going to survive, it's going to go on, it needs the people who are part of it to contribute. Otherwise, who's going to pay the people who make the decision to run the systems that are the hierarchy? And uh, you're kind of creating the same beast you destroyed. Now, it's it's a smaller version. It'll take a long time before it gets as bad as the one before, but it's kind of the same. It's a seed of the same thing. So um, I'm really not a fan of those things in particular. Now, some of the people who, who start you know their own um, you know crypto nation or whatever they they call it may may agree with me and say no no we're not doing it that way we're doing it this way okay fine uh, you know, I, I don't care try your own experiment see if it works um, but the concept of a nation and those sorts of things it's to me it's just uh, hanging on to the Bronze Age. Uh, because the idea of the nation that we have now is essentially a Bronze Age construct, and it's you know it's it's outmoded, it's bar, it's it's archaic, um, and I think it just needs to go. Where I, I like to say that we're living with space age technology under Bronze Age domination, and I think we need to get past it. Yeah, I think that's a good description. I always described. Um... Uh, I'd spent time in Afghanistan, you know, a long, long time ago. And I was kind of described it as a lot of it is kind of basically like the 12th century with cell phones. And yeah, that's not the worst description. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it kind of, it kind of matches up with that thing. It's like, we're, you know, but we also kind of look in the evolutionary record. It's like, we're barely monkeys out of the trees throwing, you know, stuff at each other. And, and, and you, you go like, well, you, we, you know, ripping each other's face off or something like that. And it's like, no, we actually, we still do pretty much all of that. We just do it with clothes on and we pretend like it's a lot more uh, civilized when we do it. Um, but uh, I guess the concept of virtual nationhood that uh, was, I, I kind of had always liked was not necessarily the idea of starting a, a hierarchical structure, but of kind of having a kind of similar to how Open Bazaar works, where it's kind of like this, um, you have somewhat terms of service. It's not exactly lining up with Open Bazaar, but you have these anybody's kind of you can hire them as your arbiter, right? You can choose what uh, laws you're deciding to operate on in the space. And when you go to do commerce with somebody, um, both sides kind of know 
you know, I, I kind of abide by these laws uh, and this person abides by that. And then if they if we don't have that same kind of um, um, law structure, then we can find somebody in the middle or, uh, you know, an agreement in between oh, sure. us. And that's kind of more where so I was going. Call, we used to call that rule scaping. OK. All right. I'd not heard yeah, of that term before. Yeah, I don't know. You can probably find it on the internet somewhere. There's probably stuff that we called it rulescaping. Uh, I didn't come up with it. Uh, some other gentleman did. But uh, and it it works very nicely, and it's e it's pretty easy to do. You could actually do it with code really easily. And that's why I always really liked about uh, Open Bazaar uh, was the fact that I could yeah. just set it up. Uh, you you know you can just run uh, you know for a few bucks a month run, keep that service so it's running twenty four seven it's all decentralized and then you can just say I'm choosing X person as the arbiter of any disputes on here uh, just you know look at how they've done it before and and I've always been kind of attracted to that idea definitely as as kind of a a, a middle ground uh, I guess that's probably not a middle ground for a lot of people uh, but it kind of is a middle ground between what we have and where we'd like to go. Well, we had that in um, oh gosh, 2000, I think, in uh, in our group, our laissez-faire city group. We had arbiters, and you could choose your arbiter, and and uh, did several disputes that were resolved quite well that way. And if we could go back to a little bit about that that time again, in, in kind of the the same period where that was all started, was you talked about it as a dry time. Um, it, and I'm not that mm -hmm. steeped in that history because it's only. You know, when when you were, I was in high school, and I just started high school in '98. Um, so, and and that was definitely not in this space or, or anything like that. That was beyond me living in a small town up in Alaska. Um, right, you were pretty young. Yeah, yeah, that and you know, running you know twenty eight eight modems uh, on dial up, and it, it was just kind of funny because that was I remember when when the internet first came to our town. Uh, nobody understood the idea of like if at first it took a, quite a few weeks that if you if you're on the internet you know you can't call so then the people with a little bit more money in their pocket were buying you know a second phone line or you know the kids couldn't go on until after after dinner you know um, <laughs> right but you kind of talked about the dry periods and this is kind of the you know the advent of the internet when it really kind of went you know went, uh, went from kind of a niche. Um, uh, you know, the 90s and into the, you know, definitely in the early 2000s went from niche to kind of consumer level. And, and you know, most people were a good chunk, I should say, of the Western world had access to the Internet by then. Um, so what was that kind of you, you, you call it a dry period? What was the kind of the feeling of a lot of the the, the, the cypherpunks at the time of of uh, where this, you know, where the Internet was headed um, and, and what could be done about it? Well, what happened was in, let's say, 88 to 92, 93, 94, uh, cypherpunks was very exciting. And there were people, you know, chiming in from all over the place. The, the list, the old cypherpunk mailing list, um, was very active. Uh, and, and, and the most interesting people, um, it, it, was a really, it was a really hot place. Uh, remember, this was the time when PGP was being released, and, and there were all sort of creative things that these guys did. Um, PGP got to Europe uh, by a fascinating route. Uh, I don't know if you know the story, but the guys who – Phil Zimmerman um, uh, actually took um, RSA uh, – not code, but the RSA concept, and I think he had help, and built a program called Pretty Good Privacy that was pretty good. It wasn't great. Um, the second version that Hal Finney did was really good. Uh, but, you know, it was illegal. Uh, cryptography was called a munition, a weapon, and if you exported it from the United States, you went to jail, baby. It was like you were sending Stinger missiles to somewhere. And... Um, it was illegal to do it. They wanted these guys wanted their friends in Europe to have it too, and so what they did is they took the program and since there was still you know pretty pretty much anyway uh, free speech, they put it in a book and they printed it up as a book, stuck it in envelopes and mailed it to the guys on the other side of the Atlantic, and the guys on the other side got it and turned it back into code and then they had PGP, um, so. You know, there was all kinds of in 
interesting, innovative things going on. It was very exciting. Um, then Phil Zimmerman, for something else, not for the bailing part, but for something else, uh, was indicted, and he was about ready to go to jail. There was a defense fund and all that, but it was hit and it was touch and go for a long time. And uh, all these guys who were excited about cryptography, they were excited and they thought it was great, but, you know, they had to work, too. And nobody was paying anybody to be a cryptographer. You know, you could, you could make money if you wanted to do, you know, um, you know, Napster or Facebook or something like that. But you couldn't make money as a cryptographer. And these guys needed jobs. So after the excitement kind of wore off, people kind of wandered away and it wasn't really doing anything right then. And it was just kind of, uh, things were very slow. Um, people were still excited and, and came in, uh, myself among others during this period, but it was, uh, you know, was, it wasn't what it had been. And it was a kind of a dry time. Uh, and it stayed, you know, our project kept things moving in the interim. Eagle came along, which wasn't cryptography, or at least very little, uh, but it was financial independence. It was uh, money that wasn't really censored and wasn't didn't really give away your identity. And even when though they had uh, e-gold accounts, there was uh, somebody who built a system that was an anonymizer system that went over the top of it. And that worked very well for a long time, too. Um, so... You know, it was uh, it wasn't the best of times for all things cypherpunk, uh, but boy, that boy didn't that change when Bitcoin came around? Wow. Yeah, I, I, it's funny that you mentioned Phil because I've been uh, I've been in contact with him. Uh, I, I've been trying to get, get to nail and get you know get get an interview date nailed down. He's just kind of a he's, he's a guy that's kind of pretty busy and and uh, and, and rightfully so. Uh, uh, you know, is it uh, you know is just it's hard to, hard to nail down a time with him but yeah his story was it was very very interesting the fact that he kind of took that stand where it could have gone really bad for him um and the easier oh, route would have just w w the easier route would have just been like you know kind of give in um and and he didn't i mean and that was kind of a really important thing and and uh i imagine that the phil uh, his his ordeal kind of played very heavily into the idea that satoshi had to stay anonymous to release the code uh, anonymously because you know it it could have rightly been um classified as such like pgp was um you never know how that that story could have came out but i imagine that uh that that had some sort of effect on his whoever that person was uh their their reason to stay anonymous that could very well be and you know i, I think that Staying anonymous was the second best thing Satoshi did. <laughs> you know, the first being writing the program. Uh, but just getting out of the way, uh, I think, was uh, – I wish I knew who Satoshi was and I could buy him, her, or they a drink. Yeah, I think that would be one of those uh, those mystery things that's just going to remain. I, you know, personally, I hope it ends up being like the Sopranos ending where you just never know. Um, and everyone just <laughs> ke everyone keeps on guessing what it is. Uh, or guessing on you know what happened and who that was, but because I mean yeah. everyone has their own pet theory, um, right? And like you said too, I mean there's there's probably more than likely you at least knew who it was uh, at some point, just being in that kind of very small group of of, of folks that would have had the had the you know just the the technical ability to do that, but um, yeah, he had to he had to have come out of the cypherpunk group. Um, just the combination of things, you know, Diffie-Hellman key exchange, and then all of a sudden we got Bram Cohen do, getting giving us BitTorrent uh, with that peer-to-peer -peer thing, and you know all, all of the other pieces. Adam Back's uh, proof of work, and then Hal Finney's uh, reusable proof of work, and all, all these things coming on. All these all flow directly into Bitcoin, and um, you know it just it just had to be somebody from that group. That and do you even know uh, to to submit it to those mailing groups? It's not like that was anything. Anybody would have really known any of those cypherpunk mailing groups unless someone was already in that uh, in that in that sphere. But um, right, 
It was just was this yeah. wasn't like you know a very terribly public thing. No, and uh, yeah, like I said, I I, I kind of hope we don't uh, we we don't ever know. I think that it's uh, like you said the <laughs> Sometimes best. A little mystery is better, huh? Yeah, yeah, I think it is, and um, you may I, be right. Yeah, I, I think, you know, like I said, you know, there, there, there's the bad part of where people can glom their own, like, well, this is what Satoshi meant. No, this is what Satoshi meant. But I think that that's helpful in a way, too, is that it brings interest, it brings passion into the into the space. And then, um, you know, the, the iteration, iteration of Bitcoin, uh, like you said, code, code will just keep on running. It doesn't really care whether I think that it's supportive of this idea or that idea. Um and, and I think right. that's that's its most important thing is it's kind of uh, to to a certain extent ideological resistant. But um, I, I don't want right. to. Right, that's well said. Yes, I, I I don't want to keep you you much longer. We've we're almost at an hour here, and uh, like, like I talked to you uh, via email as well. I'd like to have you on uh, in the. Uh, really near future to kind of just discuss, you know, because uh, a lot of people don't understand basic online security and how to make sure that they are keeping their privacy um, kind of under lock uh, because going to incognito mode in Chrome is not going to do that for you. Uh, so, no. <laughs> so I'd like I'd like to 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 do that as well here in the near future. But uh, uh, for right sure. now, um, it, I know that you kind of don't really have. Uh, a real large online presence, like you're not on Twitter or anything like that, as far as that I'm aware of. Um, but I'm not. Yeah, you have your blog and and you have a, um, a email contact on there, I, I believe. But uh, why don't you uh, let everybody know like how they can find you and you know uh, who you want to hear from, if if anybody, I guess. Well, uh, our newsletter. Uh, there's the free articles, free posts, uh, usually once a week. And then we have a, a monthly subscription letter. That's at freemansperspective.com, just the way it sounds. And uh, then uh, I manage uh, Crypto Hippie, uh, which, which is C-R-Y-P-T-O-H-I-P-P-I-E.com, which is a, uh, honestly, it's a VPN, and it's probably the only one that's actually done uh, well enough that I would consider using. And I, I know that sounds tough promote, promoting, but that's the way it is. Okay. And, and, uh, I'll have all the, uh, the links to Freeman's perspective, as well as to your books, uh, your article and everything else that we, you know, discussed in this, uh, episode at digitalcrypto.com. Uh, and once again, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure.